If you want to turn with me to Genesis 3, we're going to pick up in verse 16. And we're going to the end of chapter 3 to 24. Seems crazy to do two verses last week and eight or so this week. But when you do this like a year ago, who knows what was going through my head. To the woman he said... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, and for his wife, garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God set him, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and... Uh, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, have mercy on us as we come to your word. We need your mercy in order to understand. We need your mercy in order for us to be humble. And Lord, when we come to your word, we need humility. It speaks against our flesh. speaks against our natural ways. Yet, Lord, it gives life and hope. As we, as many of us who sit here are in Christ, it reveals to us the state of our world, the tragedy of sin, the dysfunction in families and marriages and the hardness of work, the loneliness in being separated from our true home, which is in the presence of you. Father, would we build a great weight on what it means to live with you, to know you, to dwell with you and understand you? Would we see the great pain of being separated from you and how that has great effect over every aspect of our life, whether male or female. God, I pray with all my might that your grace would be evident through every curse that you laid upon us, that your grace would be seen as we look to the hope in Christ among these curses that you put on our world that we live in today. Lord, we know that we'll suffer these curses all the days of our life, even in the midst of being redeemed in Christ. But Lord, would we suffer in a way that draws us ever more to Christ? And would it give us great hope of the new heavens and the new earth when all these things will be done with? Death will be no more. It will be put under Jesus' feet and he will reign as king and we'll see him face to face. Lord, we long for that day and we anticipate it as we preach the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In last week's passage, we saw the curse upon the serpent and the curse upon Satan. We stated that the serpent was the instrument used by Satan in order to deceive the woman. And as the Levitical law says, if an animal is used for evil or causes pain to a human or death to a human, it should be put to death. It should be under the judgment of God and to be cursed means 
was to be put under the judgment of God. So both the physical creature, the serpent, was cursed and the spiritual creature or being, however we define him, Satan, was cursed. And as God sent forth this curse upon the serpent, speaking with a metaphor that applied to the spiritual realm as well. So as we feel a bit creeped out by snakes and we don't have a loving relationship with them, I know some people may have that, but although the normal, the general norm is that we don't enjoy playing with brown snakes, uh, the same is true with us and the spiritual world of Satan. And then we went on to say that the Satan's offspring, the serpent's offsprings, those who do the will of Satan, which is everyone at some point in their life, are against the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman. And of course, the offspring of the woman is Christ who tramples on the serpent's head and those he saves. So the offspring of the woman, Jesus, brings us out of being offsprings of Satan and we become adopted children of God. I'm restating this because last week I had a faithful brother whom I love come and explain that he didn't agree with me or rather that I wasn't very clear on what it meant to be opposed to the offspring of the serpent. Now, let's state two very different fields of thought. We've got theology, things we believe about God. So God is sovereign. Uh, we believe in sin. We believe in the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ. These are theological statements that we believe. But then there's practical theology. How does our theology work out in daily life? What does it mean if God is sovereign over all things? How does that work out in the way we live? Well, the same is true for this theology. If we believe that everyone is a child of Satan... How does that work in our practical theology? If everyone who doesn't believe in Christ is a child of Satan, then how should we interact with people as children of God or adopted children of God in Christ? Well, practically, I said we oppose them with the gospel. Now, that word oppose might sound harsh, that we are in opposition to the people of the world. Well, we're not in direct opposition. We don't hate them. We love them as Christ loved them and we preach the gospel, the gospel of grace and truth. That means we are gentle and kind and accept the very fact that we ourselves were once enemies of God and children of Satan, but we have received a gift of the light of the gospel which has enabled us to see the glory of God, to see the depth of our problem, so now we can speak clearly into their life. So when we go forth into the world and practically understand, well, everyone is a child of Satan until they are saved, we don't go forth yelling at them that they are a child of Satan. Sometimes, like Jesus did when he came across the self-righteous, the Pharisees, he did call them children of Satan. Sometimes our preaching needs a more direct message towards the self-righteous and stubborn of heart. And there is maybe a place to be firm and direct. But Jesus also was gentle and kind, and he met the woman at the well with this gentleness and kindness and graciousness. And although he was truthful and pointed out that she was a sinner, he was, a kind, he was kind in the way he went about it and offered her the living water. So when we understand our theology that the world are children of Satan unless they've been saved by Christ, we as the children of God who once were children of Satan go forth with grace and truth and preach the gospel in a way that invites them to take of the living water in Christ or the bread of life in Christ or the way, the truth, and the life in Christ or the re resurrection in Christ. So I hope that clears things up a little as we practically live out what we believe in the Scripture. And we're going to continue on in this passage as we see now moving from the serpent to woman, man, and God's sort of uh, punishment consequence on all of creation. And we see a world now laid down, a world that is in a curse and in chaos, and this is what spirals out through the rest of Genesis, particularly emphasizing it between Genesis 4 and Genesis 11. And I'm genuinely going to encourage us 
We're going to hear the gospel over and over again. We hear the gospel every week, but the gospel is going to need to be very present in chapters 4 to 11 because it is a bleak, bleak picture of society. It is a very dark image of what sin does as it spirals out of control and as these curses that God put on mankind and the ground play out. But what I want to point to is this a beautiful passage in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So what's going on here is Moses has asked to see the glory of God and God has granted him to see a glimpse of his glory, not his full glory, because he would die if he did. So the Lord has passed before him and it declares, the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is an incredible description of God. It tells us about his character and the complexities of his character, mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful, Yet he will not excuse the guilty. He will not pardon the guilty. Those who are stubborn and stuck in their ways and do not come to repentance, he does not pardon. It is against God's nature to allow sin to pass by unpunished. And we see here in Genesis 3, 16 to 24, that... God doesn't allow sin to be passed unpunished. There's consequences. He lays down consequences for the woman's sin and Adam's sin. And the consequences affect the very nature of who they are. It affects how God designed them. God said to woman that she will bear children, be fruitful and multiply. And that is the area that he curses. God says to Adam, man, work the ground and keep it, and God curses the ground. So God affects deliberately the very, the very aspect we were created for, the very reason or the very role that man and woman has. These are uncomfortable graces to us. It's a term Augustine used, uncomfortable graces. And he said, I have learned to love the rod of God's uncomfortable grace as it beats against my heart because it makes us realize our need for him. So in this weighty passage of God cursing our very roles that we were created for, what he is doing is giving us a grace in order for us to know that we need him in our life, in order for us to know that Away from the presence of God, there is no hope. Away from the presence of God is only death. And although Adam and Eve did not die immediately when they sinned, they do die, Adam, some 900 years later. But what it's stating is their life is death. The way they are living is not a real life at all. And Christ says when he comes to this earth, I have come to give life and life abundantly what he is saying is, I've come to give you spiritual life, a life in which you were meant to have in the beginning, a life knowing your creator and understanding why you were created. So as we look at these curses, we see God's love for justice, yet his mercy and graciousness and slow to anger abound because he did not cut men off completely, but gave them signs, lasting marks, uncomfortable graces to remind them of their need for him and to remind them that the garden in his presence in the new heaven and the new earth will be far better than this life. So as we do, let's work through some verses, starting in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pains in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
So the curse has been laid down on woman and it is the center of her existence, her very role in which she was created for, her role as mother and her role as wife and helper. What was once an ease and what was once an easy joy will now have pain and toil. Now, kids were never brought into the garden, which probably tells us that they didn't last long in the garden without sinning and turning from God. But we know that if they were brought forth in the garden, it would have been a lot easier than it was today. So the curse affects the very center of which women were created for. Now, we live in a world where there's singleness and childlessness. So how do we understand that? Well, that's part of the curse for one. Part of the curse is that we will live in a world where things don't function as they should. So by nature, we were created to be in relationship, man and woman, and we were created to be fruitful and multiply. But because of this curse that God lays down on the world, we are in dysfunction and disorder. But Christ has redeemed you and redeemed your singleness and redeemed your childlessness, just as Boaz redeemed Ruth in the book of Ruth. The Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, you will see how hard it was for a single woman or a childless woman. Look at the depth of Sarah's brokenness or Rebecca's later or Hannah in 1 Samuel as they cry out and desire children and feel like they're not complete without them. Now, marriage and children are God-given desires and it is not wrong to pray for these things. It is wrong to have them as our ultimate desire. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has redeemed our singleness and made it purposeful. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, in bringing you into the church, has made your childlessness purposeful. Because now the Great Commission has come and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And his word is, go forth and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I have commanded you. So it's important to remember that because of Christ and his redemptive act on on the cross, the curse has been pushed aside and now everything has purpose. Our singleness or our childlessness has purpose. We can desire to be married and we can desire to have children. Let them not be the ultimate thing because God has given us everything we lose in the church. What you lack in your singleness is found within the church. And what you lack in your childlessness is found within the church. I have found a great joy in the many babies that are in our church. As Grace and I struggle to have children and pray that the Lord would grant us children, but we are content in being a part of the children that are here. So let us not see that if God has cursed this role, that that means we have no value as a single person or a a parent without children. But let us see that Christ has redeemed it. Christ has redeemed our position through his death and resurrection. So the curse that he puts down on women is childbirth. And we all know that childbirth is one of the most painful things, if not the most painful thing you can go through. And let's just say it is the most painful thing you can go through. And this was part of the effect of sin. God has turned to woman and said, you will be reminded This uncomfortable grace that you're going to experience is an affliction of doing the very thing that you're created for. So God shows in the act of having children the need for him and the need for his grace. So every time we hear of a woman having children and going through the pains of childbirth, or as we, if we read this carefully, it says, in pain you shall bring children forth. It's not only just having children, but it's also the raising of children. Children aren't easy. They are challenging and they are little sinners. That makes them all the more challenging. So as we see in the scriptures, it's not only the pain of childbirth, but the raising of children that is now cursed. And this is going to be a toilsome work. But as we work at it, as we 
as we endure parenting, as we endure, as women endure childbirth, we see that God has given us a glimpse of his grace in this beautiful image of after childbirth, there is joy. In John 16, 21, it says, just as a woman goes through the pain of childbirth and then there is joy. That is what it's like to live in this world and wait for the coming kingdom. Childbirth and the raising of children is an uncomfortable grace. As Isaiah 48 says, it tells us that God put Israel deliberately in the furnace of affliction in order to grow them, in order to change them. It is through affliction that we see our need, our desperate need for him. It's through childbirth and the raising of children that we see that God shows us that life without him is ultimately a life without life, a life of death, that we can't do it on our own. There are those times where you just can't continue as a parent, I'm sure, times where you feel like you just don't have enough. So as we look at parenting, we are calling, God, I need more grace. I need more grace. I don't have what it takes. It's an admitting of our weakness as Jesus, as Paul called us to do through the inspiration of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 12, to call forth and say, I am weak. These curses are here to reveal our weakness, to push us to the limit, to realize that we are incapable of doing the very thing we were created for without God. Look at the world. Look at the abortion rates. How many people don't want children that they would abort them? Look at the increase in time frame that you can abort children almost to full term. The fear of or the knowing of the change of life, the selfishness in realizing that your life will be completely changed. Everyone knows that child raising is hard. It's probably why the abortion rates are so high. They realize that it's so hard, so challenging. Life's going to be so different. But this is a reminder of our need to be humble in our weakness and say, God, I need you. The second curse is on the woman's role as wife and helper. It's one of conflict. If you've been married or maybe even just had interactions with the opposite sex, you'll realize that you are different, incredibly different. Different because you were made for different roles. God created man to be the head and woman to be a helper. Yet Satan's very deception... This is so obvious, Satan's very deception was to deceive and reverse this order. So he took the form of a creature that man was, have to, was meant to have dominion over, and the creature come and goes to woman, not man, and deceives woman, and the woman takes Adam with her in sin. The very role of the husband was to stand up and fight for his wife and to teach her all that God had commanded, yet seems to have failed in Genesis 3, the start of Genesis 3. So now the role of helper is one we have to fight for. And the role of head is one we have to fight for. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, yet he shall rule over you. They're not going to be at ease anymore. It's not going to become natural to us, but there will be a natural inclination to push against your husband. And it's going to be toilsome in order for us to live in the way God designed. And in fact, it's going to be impossible without Christ. The uncomfortable grace that God lays upon a marriage is that without him, you are going to be at odds with one another. And even with him, it's going to sanctify you as you find out that you two are different. We see, but this is another grace to God to us from God as it reminds us of our need for him every single day as we have conflict in our marriages it reminds us that as we watch marriage and see them unfold 
that we need to fight for the role that God had for us and not conform to the world's teaching that men and women are exactly the same and men and women can do everything the same. The world says that. But God created us different for different roles. Yes, we are equal. We are equal and it is beautiful that we are equal in God's sight, just as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in the Godhead, yet they have different roles. And in Christ's absolute beauty, he submits to God, and a wife will submit to a husband imitating Christ. God himself refers to himself throughout the Scriptures as a helper of Israel. So for us to listen to the world and say it is offensive for women to be a helper is to blaspheme God's very nature that he identifies with and to blaspheme Christ's very nature that he says he is, a helper and a servant of all. The world, under this curse, in their natural state now, which was unnatural in the garden, live contrary to one another. And as we'll see in the curse of man, Man will either become passive in a marriage relationship and lazy and hand over his rule to the woman or they become dominant and abusive. And that same word rule here can be used in a negative sense as well as a positive. He will rule over you. The positive is that he will serve you like Ephesians 5. He'll be a husband that images Christ and lays down his life for the church, it is a grace to a woman to have a husband who is loving and kind. He's not an oppressive man, not a domineering man, as he imitates Christ. Or he may be a dictator and a ruler like a dominant king of the past, and that is his sin. The curse of the conflict in marriage and the undermining of men and women's role in this world today is a reminder of our need for God in our identity as men and women. It's a reminder of our need for God to turn to his word and study, what did you create me for? Why did you give me the body that I am? Why is it different to the other sex? It's a reminder that God is the only antidote for the poison that runs in our relationships. And that only in the garden is where we found God. Only in the garden is where we would find God again. And it's in the garden that Jesus waits before he goes to the cross. I love that image. I read it in John just the other day that Jesus was in a garden praying in Gethsemane before he goes to the cross to make way for us to be in his presence again. So the curse of Adam, also at the very existence of who he is, says, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The first thing we notice is the reason for Adam's consequence is because he listened to his wife. Now that does not give men an excuse not to listen to their wives, but he listened to his wife in a corruptive way. He was to lead her, to keep and protect her, from any external, any spiritual warfare that came his way. He was the cherubim that is placed in front of the garden. That was Adam's role originally, to defend the garden. And of course, to defend his wife. He was the very one who sung a song that said, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, I will give you my life. I'll protect you as if you are my own body. And he did not do it. He neglected her in a passive self-interest way. It says he was with her. Man who, Adam, who was with her when the serpent was deceiving Eve, he just sat back and said nothing. It was unnatural for him to follow his wife. 
especially in sin. He was to lead her, but he failed in his role, which has now become normal, although a dysfunctional normal. He failed in his role in leading her away from the serpent, in leading her away from the fruit, and now what has become normal is for man to continually be passive and not listen, uh, and listen rather than lead. A man loves to opt out of responsibility. Men in our society today, as their role as worker and provider, as the one who would go out and work the ground and keep the ground and bring back provision, as we give more and more women those roles, men are sitting back going, you beauty, I can sit around and do nothing. That's one option that men have. Or the other one is they push harder and become abusive. We see this very clearly in our society today. We've either got lazy men or abusive men. We need men who are leaders, self-sacrificial leaders as Christ was, and that is only found in the presence of our Lord, which is in Jesus Christ. And because Adam's very existence, his very role is cursed, of working the ground, of being a provider, we see this here, cursed is the ground. He, he's cursed in three different ways. First, the ground is cursed. And it's obvious that he will have to work hard. If we go back to Genesis 2.5, we see very clearly that the ground just produced vegetation. As soon as man was created, it says we need man to work the ground in order for vegetation to come. Man's created, he works the ground, it grows. And there's a buffet. At first, work was easy. Work was a joy. Work has always been a part of man's life. But now, work is hard. There was no weeds or thorns or thistles. There was nothing that could harm him in the garden. But now, everything is a toil. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to ground, for you out of it were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The second curse we see is man's enjoyment in his employment has been lost. His enjoyment in his employment has been lost. He wanted, he once enjoyed and loved his work. It was when he would go to work and plant a crop and it would grow and flourish. But now we find work challenging and hard. Whether it's emotional, physical, or mental work, it is a hard work for men. And at times, it can feel meaningless. We do the same thing over and over, this cycle of turning up to work, doing the same repetitive work, and seeing very little results. And because of this, because work is now challenging and hard, we hear, and because our employment is no longer enjoyable, we hear a lot of negatives about work. Why do I have to work? I wish I could work less. If you've ever been on a construction site, all we complain about on a construction site is how hard work is and how, much, how little the money is we get paid. That was my experience. I'm sure it hasn't changed in the last few years that I haven't been there. But we see... That man will opt, if necessary, if possible rather, for a lazy existence. And it is a sin for man to hand off the responsibility of provider to anyone else in the world, especially his wife. It is a sin to do so. And Proverbs tells us that the lazy man is a sluggard. Listen to these challenging words, Proverbs 6, 9 and 10. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like a, an armed man. If you read the Proverbs, this is not the only one that speaks about laziness. And I think as it is written, Proverbs, to a son is a great warning for men not to opt out of the role that God created them, although it is hard. The uncomfortable grace on man 
is that work will be now a challenge and a reminder that we will sweat and toil and at times not want to do it and at times want to opt out of it. But this is a reminder of our need to humbly serve in the role that God has given us. It's a reminder that we need to live in the place that God created us. He's given, a, he's given us bodies and minds to do that work, to sweat, to toil. And we can't take on the physical pain of childbirth, so therefore we shouldn't give our role to women, our curse, the curse that is upon the ground to women. Women can't opt out of their role, and neither should men opt out of theirs. The third consequence is that life is short. He says that we will go back to kicking, that we will go back to dust, the very ground we kick about our feet. A great reminder, a great humbling reminder that God formed man from ground and that all the days of our life will be a cycle of working, 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 and then we die. It sounds very bleak. It sounds very hopeless. And the state that God wants man and woman in is to feel like life is a repetitive cycle of nothingness without him. That although he didn't kill them as soon as they left the garden, their life is pretty much a life of the walking dead. They have no meaning and purpose unless they are in his presence. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, knew this very well. Solomon was the richest king probably ever to exist, and he he experimented with his riches. He went and worked and toiled, and then he went and partied with all his wealth. He built gardens that were actually forests, forests and baths that were spas, pretty much lakes for himself. He had parties that would rival any party we have had today. And he said this, at the start of Ecclesiastes, he says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The generation goes, the generation comes, but the earth remains forever. We have a moment on this planet, and the writer of Ecclesiastes determines that our toiling is worthless unless we acknowledge God. In verse 13, chapter 12, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the way, the way he finishes his book or his letter, it says, the, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Our life is utterly meaningless without God. Our life is utterly dead without God. And the curses that God put upon mankind and upon creation are there to remind us and serve as an uncomfortable grace of affliction to bring us to him and fall on our knees and say, I can't do this on my own. I need you. My life is purposeless without you. Raising children has no meaning unless I am raising them for your kingdom. Having marriage has no meaning unless I am doing it to reflect Christ and the church. Working has no meaning unless I am advancing the kingdom and serving the world that you created. All work is purposeful if we do it for the kingdom of God. All work is meaningless if we do it for ourselves or for any other reason other than God. And we can say with Augustine, as I said at the start, your rod was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. Your rod was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. That is what these curses are there for. Thrusting at our heart. Every day we toil as men. Every day we struggle as parents. Every day we're in conflict as husband and wife. Every day we sit in the curse of our, or the pain of our singleness, or the pain of our childlessness, is a reminder of our need for Jesus, is a reminder that life outside of him is only death, and there is no life without him. 
The world is groaning, as Romans 8 says, and we are groaning with us, trying, falling on our knees, calling out to the merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithful Savior, calling out to him. In these curses, these uncomfortable graces, they are a gift from God to remind us of our need for him. This passage finishes and chapter 3 finishes with some lasting remarks on mankind that sort of more consequences of sin that, that go across both man and woman and creation. In verse 20 it says, Man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. First of all, Adam takes up his role, notice, as head. We know that because he names Eve. If you name something, it was yours. It was your role as a leader to name. Kings named things. God named creation. And then he gave the role to Adam to name animals. And here he names Eve in his role as head of her and calls her Eve. And his name means mother of living things, as it tells us. What Adam is doing is one standing in his position that God created him for, even in the midst of knowing that these curses are going to plague his life and affirming a reminder upon Eve of her curse. That's a bit harsh. He's giving her a lasting remark that will remind her that she has been cursed and will bring forth, multiply children in this cursed world and needs to do that for the glory of God. He calls her mother of living things, to remind her that she's going to be in pain and that pain is an uncomfortable grace for her to depend on God. Of course, her children, one of them becomes a murderer and the descendants are very broken and disordered, which will serve as multiple reminders of our need for God. The next lasting remark, which is, Significant is that God clothes them. But notice what he clothes them in, skin. The first death has now taken place in that God has killed some animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve. A sacrifice has been given. Adam tried to clothe them in fig leaves to cover their shame, but God covers them in something sturdy and firm and by killing an animal atones for their disgrace and their shame. What we see in this sacrifice of the first animal killed is the covering which is a symbol of their sin. They need to be covered. They are no longer pure. They now have false intentions with one another. They now, can't, they now question each other's motives. So God sacrifices an animal and gives them the covering, coverings just as the Levitical priests got their clothing. The Levitical police, priests were only able to be clothed by the sacrifices that were brought into the temple. And it says in Leviticus 7, 8, And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. So he would gain the skin. We see here God's first function as the high priest, but we see all the more greater Christ acting as the high priest when he didn't give up the life of an animal but gave up the life of himself and clothed us in the Holy Spirit, as it says in Acts 1.8. He clothes us in the Holy Spirit. He clothes us in his righteousness. And one day it says the church is granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, Revelation 19.8. As we look to this lasting remark of God clothing with skin, we are reminded of our clothing of the Holy Spirit of righteousness and the clothing of pure white linen when we enter into the bridegroom's feast in the new heavens and the new earth. But the major remark, the ending of chapter 3, is the gathering of all the curses together and a reminder that we cannot live a true life, because we are separate from God. Verse 22 to 24. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The deception of Satan that said you could be like God in some ways wasn't a full lie. It was a part truth. Yes, Adam and Eve would become like God in defining good and evil, being morally autonomous. What Satan forgot to tell them is they weren't created for this and because they weren't created for it, all chaos broke forth. We have no right to define good and evil. We are not the creator of the universe. We don't have infinite wisdom. We don't have infinite knowledge. Therefore, our defining of good and evil in an autonomous state away from God is selfishness. And because of this, we are cut off from God's presence and notice where God's presence is where the tree of life is. The tree of life, whether you take it as a physical tree, I do, I don't see why God couldn't give us a physical symbol to represent where I am, there my presence are, or a symbolic tree that, sorry, where I am, there life is, or a symbolic tree that says where God is, life exists in the garden. God says we're going to cut man off from life. And to cut man off from life is to separate man from God. These uncomfortable graces of living in a world outside of relationship with God. As Ephesians 2 reminds us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived. We weren't physically dead. We physically are walking around. We are alive, but we were spiritually dead because we have been cut off from God. And what we see from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11 is a world cut off from God spiraling in their self-defining of good and evil and blocked from the presence of God and true life. Blocked not by man as they should have been, but blocked by a cherubim. The cherubim, a mystical creature of four legs and wings and a head that would change from bear to man to animal to lion, to goat, to ox, all sorts of strange images this cherubim would produce. It was there to put fear in the heart of man. A flaming sword that points every direction to say that there is no way in, no matter where you come from. The very cherubim were placed and embroidered on the curtain, the veil that protects the Holy of Holies. A copy of the heavenly places that we see in Hebrews 9 and a copy of the Garden of Eden. God's presence is now blocked. We are cut off from God. No one can enter into his holy presence. The Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim which held up the mercy seat, a symbol of our separation from God. These uncomfortable graces are there to remind us that he alone is the only antidote to our poison the poison in our relationships with one another, with him, and with this creation. It's called sin. And the only way to God now is in Christ. So we walk from here as people who are in Christ, who have had access to the Holy of Holies. We have been let back in, so to speak, to the Garden of Eden, and we'll be let back in to the greatest garden that has ever been seen in the new heavens and the new earth, where the rivers will run from the throne of God. So how should we live? What does this mean for us? Well, let us not opt out of what we were created for. Let us be fruitful and multiply because we now are the people of God. We live in Genesis 1 and 2, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to be fruitful and multiply. We want to raise children who know Christ. We don't want to opt out of mothering and fathering. We don't want to opt out of toiling and working the ground. We want to be multipliers through evangelization of the world. Our singleness matters. Our childlessness matters because God has redeemed us in Christ. We have a purpose to be fruitful and multiply. If you look carefully at the book of Acts, It says the church was fruitful and multiplied and grew in number. 
a very reference to Genesis 2. Our role as Christians is to live in Genesis 2 as the church displays the holiness of God. The roles in which men and women have to uphold them and love them and cherish them. That we would uphold the purpose of working and protecting the Garden of Eden, which is to protect the presence of God, which is now in the church. That we would extend the borders of God's presence by extending the gospel out to the world. As we, the children of God, live in a toilsome world where these curses still reign and will reign until Christ redeems this land and brings in the new heavens and the new earth, would we live in Genesis 2 and not in Genesis 3? Christ has redeemed us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to live this way. Would we put aside our sinful inclinations? Would we put aside the curses that plague us? And would we uphold the holiness and purpose of God, which is to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply, and to extend the presence of God to the world? Let's pray. Father, from these curses, these uncomfortable graces, we may sit here in pride because, Lord, at times we will not think in heavenly ways but think in earthly ways. And for some of us, we may sit here as men who want to opt out of their role as men and head and taking responsibility or as women who feel hard done by that they are a helper and not the head. Father, we are called to be humble servants. We're called to reflect you. Will we not blaspheme you by the way we act or think? Would we uphold your word, which clearly states that we were created differently for different roles? Lord, with these curses that plague us that we once lived in, would we put them aside in order to live for Christ and Christ alone? Would we embrace these uncomfortable graces, this furnace of affliction, as it reminds us of our need for you? Every time conflict rises in the home, every time we feel the weight of our singleness or childlessness, every time, Lord, we feel the hatred for work or the pain and the toil of a fatiguing body, would we call upon your name in weakness and humility and say, I need you, Lord, I need you. Only is there life in you. We thank you for Christ, Lord. We thank you that he is what we are clothed in, his righteousness and holiness. We, need no need, we have no need for, for garments of skin or for sacrifices of animals, for we have a holy sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, your son Jesus. What a gift of grace. Lord, we love you. We cherish you. Holy Spirit, increase our faith in you, that we may walk your way and live for your purpose, that your kingdom may come in great power. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.